I want to take you back to your elementary school days. And, you know, I think we all had those moments when one of two things happened that suddenly in a classroom that was normally kind of well-behaved, everybody's doing fine, everybody's kind of on point. There's a few little trouble things brewing up, but for the most part, things are going well. But there's one of two situations that causes all that to change. One is a situation where you have the substitute teacher. This can also happen in older grades as well. That is, you have your normal teacher who has command of the classroom, but then the substitute comes in. They don't have the relationships. They don't have the authority. They aren't respected, perhaps. The, the students try things and push things, and they're going to attempt new things when the substitute teacher is there. That's, things fall to pieces then, right? The second uh, scenario, school setting, normal situation, and this can really get chaotic, is when the teacher completely departs from the classroom. I mean, like, walks out the door and is gone for what apparently will be an extended period of time. Normally well-behaved, suddenly you can have objects flying through the air. You can have people on top of desks. You can have all sorts of crazy stuff happen in a classroom because the, the one who's kind of restrained everything and kept everything in order is gone. It's out of the picture. And, and suddenly uh, things go kind of crazy. Um, this shows that the presence of that teacher, that presence of that good authority uh, makes all the difference uh, and, and is, is, is incredibly powerful. Uh, today I want to talk to you about uh, how God brings lasting change. And he does it through his presence. And he does it by removing things that are, are not good. All right. Now, just to catch us up here a little bit, we've been working our way through the book of Revelation, and we've had all the things from the churches in the first uh, two or three chapters, and then we walked our way through a lot of, uh, you know, uh, seals and, and uh, trumpets and bowls that are these things that come upon a planet Earth at various stages and places. But at the end, these last few chapters, we've gotten to a place where God is bringing judgment on evil in the world. And, and, and one, um, one author has written it this way, uh, that we get the end of Babylon. The end of Babylon, which is a city that represents the ideologies, cultures, societies, whatever, people, leaders, opposed to the living God. And the writer writes, so ends the tale of the first city when Babylon is judged. Babylon has ruled the word with regard for no one but herself, she is the great prostitute who has seduced the nations into following her illicit way of life. Inspired by Satan, she has taken into her own hands the right to control the entire inhabited world. Her deceptive practices have lured all but the faithful into ungodliness. Her doom, however, is certain. She will be reduced to a heap of burning ashes and her lovers will stand far afar and are marvel at how great has been her fall. We got through that in in, uh, in Revelation chapter 17 and Revelation 18 and 19. Heaven will be filled with hallelujahs. The hallelujah chorus breaks out in Revelation 19. And those who have resisted the claims of Babylon, even to the point of death, the triumphant Messiah will return. And all who have fallen under the control of the, the beast, the Antichrist, the false prophet, will be destroyed. 
The death of the martyrs will be vindicated. The people of God will be vindicated. Satan, we saw last weekend, bound in the abyss for a thousand years while the church reigns triumphant with the Lamb of God. Babylon has fallen. The forces of Satan in this world will be destroyed and he and his henchmen will burn forever in the lake of fire. So that's where we are. And then we come to Revelation chapter 20, verse 7. And we're going to learn something about how, how this all kind of wraps up, but also we're going to learn something about God and about good and about evil. All right, so come with me, verse 7. Now in the thousand years, this earthly reign of Jesus, where the saints are resurrected from the dead in glorified resurrection bodies, and most likely there are people that are uh, non-regenerate, that is, they are not believers in Jesus, but somehow they have, they have survived through a, a difficult days and the tribulation period, and some of them go on to live lives during this thousand years and have children and so forth. But when the, that reign comes to an end, however long or symbolic it might, may be, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. We learned this last week, that Satan is in the abyss for a thousand years. He's chained by a single angel, but now he's going to be released from his prison for one uh, last, uh, final, uh, completely futile attempt at opposing Jesus. And he will go out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth. So it's like this widespread now. Satan just goes out and gathers everybody he possibly can that will listen to him. And there are people, not the people of God, but there are people that are not of God who are there during this, the end of this millennial reign. And, uh, and, and it's called Gog and Magog, which is from the book of Ezekiel, which is a, uh, it's kind of like how Babylon is used to uh, depict the evil uh, empires that, uh, persecute the church. Gog and Magog are these rebellious nations that attack the people of God as well. Kind of, and they're, so they're kind of symbolic of what's happening here in these days after the thousand years are over. So he's gathering up everybody he possibly can to have one last go at Jesus, to gather them for battle. Now this, you got to admit, is a rather, somebody called it a rather unusual parole. Satan's been in prison for a thousand years. Now he's let out. And neither, um, uh, what we're going to find out here is the designs of Satan and his character are not uh, altered in the least. A thousand years in prison did not change him at all. Uh, the passage of time has had no impact on Satan. And Satan instead picks up right where he left off and resumes his nefarious activities to oppose God and to lead people astray, to deceive the nations, those opposed to Jesus. Some people have called this the second coming of Satan. <laughs> so he's been gone for a thousand years. He's back. Okay, you with me? Their number is like the sand of the sea. Verse nine, they came up across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the encampment of the saints. So the people of God are still pictured kind of as the, the, the people who, uh, who are still kind of uh, awaiting the full consummation of the kingdom of God. They're still in this kind of encampment, this almost exile or this wilderness experience where they're, they're, they're together as a people of God and, and they're going to stand against the, the enemy attack that is coming their way. The beloved city, most likely referring here to Jerusalem or maybe just the city of God. Babylon, the city of humanity, evil humanity, and the beloved city, the city of God, the people of God, who are there 
to meet this. How literally we are to take all this, we'll find out, won't we? But certainly it shows this final clash of good and evil that is still to come. And there's a lot of people who come into this this, uh, moment of trying to gather for battle. And they come up against the people of God. There's sort of this weird, I would say, fatal attraction that people have to Satan. Uh, I mean, he's, he's, he's no good. He's completely evil. But for some reason, the human heart just gives in to him. And here's the first principle I want to give to you. How does God bring lasting change? We learn here that through this scenario and through many others throughout human history before this, God reveals the true nature of good and evil. We've learned good because God in his incredible, beneficent, uh, and incredibly kind, compassionate uh, heart gives the people of God and even people that are apart from God this thousand years. Now the people of God reign in during those thousand years, uh, but even people that are not a part of the people of God have this opportunity to turn to Jesus, to, to, to turn to him in, in repentance and faith. And so we see in this goodness of God and his, his long suffering. He puts Satan in prison for a thousand year time out to think about it. Think about what you're doing here. But we also learn he reveals the nature of evil. Because what we're, what's being proved here, guys, by, why, people ask, why there's there even a millennium? Why do you need this thousand years before the eternity? But one of the reasons is to reveal the true nature of good and evil, to show and display on planet Earth Jesus in history, reigning in goodness, and the glory and the knowledge of God cover the Earth as, as, the, as, as, as far as you can possibly imagine. But the interesting thing is, when those thousand years come to the end, Satan is completely unchanged. His nature is still evil. He's just as bad as he's ever been. And people who have not trusted in Jesus, they have had great environments. They have had the perfect, almost paradise, just short of eternity, paradise to experience. And they experience all the reign of Jesus Christ himself on earth. I mean, all the blessings and gifts that flow from that kind of government of Jesus. And the minute Satan reappears, the wickedness and the desperation of the human heart is revealed instantly. Because suddenly they gather, they join Satan in spite of the fact that they've had a thousand years to experience Jesus reigning. They instantly turn against him. And they join Satan for this final battle. This is all to reveal the wickedness of the human heart. See, a lot of people said, well, if I just had a better circumstance or if I'd had different parents or if something better, my life would have been easier, then I would have, you know, been a believer in Jesus. But that hasn't happened. It isn't circumstances that are the problem. It's not the trials of life that are a problem, though they are difficult. It is the, the problem is inside the human heart. That's what's wrong with the world. How do you bring about lasting change? You got to do something with the heart. You got to do something on the inside of people to make a lasting difference because they had the perfect circumstances. I mean, Jesus is in charge and he's reigning in this incredible, compassionate, amazing thing for a thousand years. And the instant they have a chance to go the other direction and they're deceived, they just head right there. Okay, so now they've gathered against him. The crises of life, um, someone has said, they don't just... uh, 
They don't just shape us. They reveal our hearts. And that's what this crisis has done. It's revealed their hearts. And so now they're battled. They've all surrounded the people of God. They're all coming against them. Now, and the other thing I want to say just real quick is I think Satan has read Revelation 20. This has been written for at least 2,000 years. So he's had plenty of opportunity to read the final chapter. I think he has read this. It doesn't matter. He's still going to have one last go. And I'm assuming the people who are there, they've read it, but they're still going to oppose God. And they think in the, in the deception of evil that somehow they're going to win this battle. And so they go against Jesus and they come against the people of God. And it looks like we're going to have this epic clash. Uh, I mean, they, 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 they've surrounded the encampment of the saints, the beloved city, and we're going to have this huge final battle. And then what happens? It says, then fire came down from heaven and consumed them. One sentence. It's over. Kind of remember, you remember this scene from uh, Indiana Jones? Check it out. Exactly. I mean, it's like this guy's thinking he's going to do all this amazing stuff and Indiana Jones just takes him out. And that's what happens here. Jesus says, okay, boom, we're done. Fire came down from heaven and consumed them. The, the battle is over in a, a, a second. I mean, it's just over with immediately because God shows himself to be all powerful. Jesus, you cannot oppose him. Evil will not win. This is the encouragement we have because otherwise we're stuck with evil forever. Verse 10, we find, we find the, the end. Now we get, we already took care of, of the, the, the beast, the antichrist, and the false prophet. Now we come to the third person of the unholy trinity, and that is the devil. Verse 10, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire, that's hell, guys, and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. In the words of the great theologian, Taylor Swift. And we are never, ever, ever getting back together. We're never gonna see Satan again. We're never gonna have to deal with these evil forces ever, ever, ever again. Here's the second principle. God destroys evil and his good triumphs. How does God bring lasting change? God, here is a Christian worldview. God brings lasting change. One of the things that must be done to bring lasting eternal change is God must reveal the true nature of good and evil so everybody gets it and then destroy evil and have good triumph. How does God bring lasting change? God has to destroy evil. It has to be opposed. As long as evil is there, the world, the universe cannot be right. But now he has finally destroyed them. And you get this lake of fire and sulfur. They're tormented day and night forever and ever. So there's everlasting conscious punishment. And guys, I, I don't know. Some people, is this literal or figurative or symbolic or whatever? Here's what I want to tell you. Is that whatever you take these words to mean, they are communicating a truth, a real fact, that in the spiritual world, there will be a final and everlasting destruction of the forces of evil, which have plagued men and women since the Garden of Eden. And they will be taken care of forever. That is awesome.
So what do you do with a passage like this? How, what do you deal with it? How, how do you, what are the takeaways from a passage like this? Because Satan's done, he's toast, literally, <laughs> you know, in, in the lake of fire, and we're done. And so we have a, there, now we'll, we'll get to the rest of the story next weekend and following. But what are the life takeaways? Let me give you, uh, I think I got five or six of them here. Number one, first takeaway is this. Lasting change comes by defeating evil from the inside out. Lasting change comes from defeating evil from the inside out. Here is a distinctly Christian understanding of the way the world works. The way you bring lasting change is from the inside out. You have to deal with the heart of people. Now, there are, guys, there are all sorts of temporary things that we can do in society. And it's good to be involved in bringing change and, and improving economies and healthcare. And all of these things are great. And, and helping people to prosper and ending crime and racism. All these things are fantastic and amazing. And we should take those efforts. And, and, and there's technologies and there's medicines and there's all sorts of wonderful things that God gives us. And he says, that's yours to do something about. And we are busy about doing that. And we should do that because it does show the love of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus and the power of God. But ultimately, Lasting eternal change comes by defeating evil from the inside out. Now, some people say, well, let's just put up a bunch of laws and make it illegal for people to, that's how we'll, we'll, we'll defeat evil, by making a bunch of laws. People just disobey laws. And laws don't have the power to change human hearts. This is the problem, my friends, of the Pharisees. Um, Jesus had to take them on on many occasions, and they had all the laws. Because they were going to defeat evil, how? By writing rules and regulations and telling you that you need to obey them. The problem was there was no heart transformation. And we don't have the power unless we have a new heart and a new spirit put within us that Jesus promises to give us when we believe in him. Unless we have a new heart and a new spirit, we'll never change, ultimately. We might restrict things, we might improve things, but only it takes a change of heart. This is why Jesus criticized them. He said, you're, you're like... Uh, you're, you're clean on the outside of the cup, but inside the cup, it's, it's filled with all sorts of dregs and wickedness. He says, you're like whitewashed tombs. So yeah, you whitewash, but underneath all that, you're filled with dead people's bones. It's just rotting away. It's disintegrating. In fact, on one occasion, he even says, your father, to the Pharisees, the leading religious leaders of the day, your father is the devil. Wow. Why? Because ultimately, an approach that says we'll fix things from the outside in by applying law and rules and regulations is ultimately demonic because it doesn't work. That's salvation by works or by law. And ultimately, the only thing that can change us is salvation, rescue by God, by his grace and mercy and kindness, and by the power of the Holy Spirit to transform a person from the inside out. That's what I'm talking about. So how do you bring lasting change? Zechariah says, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Isaiah, we, we ran into this, uh, this idea of the sevenfold spirit of God earlier in Revelation. This is what we need. The Holy Spirit of God from the inside out transforming us. Isaiah 11, verse 2, the spirit of the Lord will rest upon Jesus. A spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. This is the sevenfold spirit that is resting on Jesus. He brings change and then he imparts that Holy Spirit onto our lives as well. 
This is when we experience the fullness in life and the completeness of blessing and real true and lasting change in this life and in the age to come. It comes from the inside out. And it's great to try stuff. It's, it's great to improve things on the outside. Absolutely in favor of that. But ultimately, we cannot count on external forces to solve the problems that we face in this world. It only happens by the power of the Holy Spirit from within. G.K. Chesterton was an English author, incredible man of God. And they, they said, write into us, what, what's wrong with the world? And they wanted responses. And G.K. Chesterton wrote back to the newspaper and said, what's wrong with the world? I am. He, he nailed it because he said, there's something wrong with the human heart. And that's where we need to start. That's where ultimate change happens. And I should say that to you. I don't know what you're facing, but whatever you're facing and, and, and circumstances or people in your life, you'd love to see lasting change. Pray for the inward renewal. Pray for the transformation of God because that's where lasting change happens. Doesn't mean that we can't help things. Doesn't mean that we can't have temporary things that are helpful. But ultimate lasting change comes from the inside out. Here's second principle. Don't underestimate or overestimate the power of evil. Okay, guys? Um, so you got, you got the spectrum in the Christian world. Um, uh, the, the ones who underestimate the power of evil and those who overestimate the power of evil. Let's talk about the overestimators first. The overestimators say, ah, oh, Satan, we're scared to death. And, and they're just terrified of Satan and his power and evil. And everything that goes wrong is blamed on Satan. Now, I agree that you can trace back to him lots of bad stuff. But guys, sometimes it's just a fallen human heart. And that eventually can be tracked back to Satan, but immediately it's not really Satan. It's just bad choices or circumstances. And sometimes we just live in a fallen world. And so let's not overestimate and give every last thing that is Satan to blame. On the other hand, I think what's more common to do is to underestimate the power of evil. Um, and, and, and when you underestimate the power of evil, you, you just, you're walking into battles, you're unprepared. You're walking into battles thinking you can handle it in your own strength and, and power. You're walking into spiritual darkness and you think, you know, uh, it's no big deal. But no, it is a big deal. And this is all the misery, uh, human misery and affliction and, and hardships and challenges and deceptions and sin that we see in this world. is because many people don't even realize there is a spiritual war. And they so underestimate the power of Satan. This is why Jesus has to put him in the abyss for a thousand years and eventually throw him in the lake of fire. Because if he's still around, there's still troubles. So don't underestimate the power of evil. You know, um, there's a great theologian by the name of Augustine. And he lived in about 480. And Augustine, he said, he, he, can, he writes a famous story about how he, he wanted to steal the fruit off of his neighbor's tree as a, as, a, as a young man. And it isn't because he was hungry. It isn't because he, 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 he needed it. He just wanted to do it because it was wrong. He wanted to see if he could get away with it. He didn't even, they didn't even eat the fruit. They just th threw it away. And he recognized in that time as he's writing, looking back on it, he says, this is the desperation and the wickedness of the human heart. There's something wrong inside of us that bends us toward evil. Original sin is what Augustine called it. And we're born with that because of the fall of Adam and Eve. And we inherit the sinful nature. And it's got to be dealt with. Interestingly, that same story 
uh, was told by an Enlightenment philosopher by the name of Rousseau. He's been incredibly influential. And he writes almost the same sort of story uh, of stealing the fruit and so forth. But instead, he says, I was influenced unduly by my friends. It was the company that I kept that caused me to, uh, uh, to give into this wrong uh, stealing the fruit. So Rousseau's answer was he just blamed it on his friends or his company that he kept. And he says, if you just improve the societal conditions, then I'll be okay. Which begs the question, well, how do those societal conditions start in the first place? I mean, how do they get bad? I think Augustine was right. And not that societal conditions don't influence us, but Rousseau was trying to trace evil back to its root. And he was wrong about this because he thought, and, and this is where most of uh, human uh, thought and philosophy camps in this world of the Enlightenment. It just says, you know, the problem with the world is we just have to have better uh, systems, better uh, processes, better governments, and so forth. And I'm all for those. But only unless you deal with the evil in the human heart, you're never going to do it. And that's why Jesus, we need Jesus, because he deals with us from the inside out. So don't underestimate or overestimate the power of evil. Number three, this passage is telling us to look for long-term solutions to long-term problems. Jesus deals with a long-term problem, that's Satan, in a long-term solution that is thousand years in the abyss and then destroying him and throwing him to the lake of fire for all eternity. That's how you deal with evil. You have to remove it completely forever. Temporary fixes and temporary saviors are not going to work. I'm sure you guys have had those little DIY things at home or maybe on the road someplace and something goes wrong, something busts loose. And, and so you, you get some duct tape and you just, it fixes anything, right? I mean, you just duct tape it down and it fixes anything, but not forever. I mean, duct tape is amazing, but it's not eternal, right? It's not a long-term solution usually. I remember years ago, we were going, with myself, my two sisters and my dad were going on a camping trip. And dad had this trailer in the back. It was kind of an open air trailer. He just threw in stuff inside of it, it had sides on it. And there's cots back there and so forth. And, you know, he does the very typical, which I've done too, the typical dad thing, goes back there. It's all, bolt, you know, all the bungee cords are all down. And he finally makes the last, you know, little pull on the bungee cords. He goes, that'll hold for sure, you know. And so we head down the road and it was my job. I was given the job to keep an eye on the, on the trailer. And so I had this little mirror in the, in the, in the passenger seat. I'm looking back and I noticed things starting to move a little bit and, and then something happened and I, and I look back and this cot just catches some air and just takes flight and it goes flying down the interstate. And I said, that, that, there she goes. And, and dad just slams on the brake. He was probably going 85 miles an hour. Took about yeah, several blocks to stop. And for the one and only time in my life, I saw my dad get out of the car and run. I'd never seen my father run up to that point in my life. And I saw my dad run down the interstate. My sisters and I thought it was maybe the most hysterical thing we'd ever seen in our lives. And the flying cot going down. And it was tumbling down the interstate. And cars were going around. And dad came back with it. But the fact was, it was, he had just, he hadn't really tied it down completely. Yeah, not, the loose ends were still loose. And 
this is why we need eternal solutions to eternal problems. And the eternal problem is ultimately in the Bible is sin, and the eternal solution is the Savior. Um, we have temporary saviors, and I'm not against them necessarily. I just, I think they're good things, but they're not saviors. They're not gods. Some of the things we try to, to fix our long-term problems are money, technology, pleasure, science, education, health, good things, family and friends. All of those things are wonderful. I, I'm in favor of them. But they're not long-term solutions. And there's so many people, maybe you're one of them today, or you have a friend or a, a family member, and they, they have this longing in their heart to have the solution to their heart's desires and the problems that they face. And they're looking in all these other places and the culture is looking in all these other places for a long-term solution. And guys, those are temporary fixes and they're positive temporary fixes. It's better than nothing perhaps, but ultimately it's not gonna work. People need the Lord and you gotta remove evil. And we need Jesus to defeat Satan. That's why he's the savior. When Jesus is Lord, there is long-term transformation. And that's the hope of every human heart. When Jesus is Lord, things really change. Therefore, good only triumphs when the gospel takes hold of human hearts. So yes, we should be active in, in changing things. We should be active in our community and loving our neighbors. We should be welcoming them like the great pumpkin party. That is building bridges to the gospel because that's the ultimate hope. But those aren't the, 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 these wonderful things that we do are not ends in themselves. They're ultimately bringing people to understand the goodness of Jesus Christ in our lives. We're shining his light, not ours. We're shining the light of Jesus so people see this must come from somewhere. And it comes from Jesus. So good triumphs when the gospel takes hold of human hearts. The gospel, this glorious message announcement that God has so loved us he sent his son into the world to die on a cross for our sins to be raised from the dead to give us life and to send his holy spirit to transform us from the inside out so that's the gospel um guys this is good stuff uh other things uh are, are good uh acquisition of skills providing funds improving processes changing systems all good but not ultimate only God changes hearts and only the gospel of Jesus Christ is our ultimate hope. There are a lot of people, I think, even sometimes sadly, Christians who have bought into the idea that somehow God is in the business of behavior management. Sin management, if you will. In other words, we're just kind of manage what's wrong here. And, and we're going to try to make it better. B.F. Skinner, I learned about him in Psychology 101 in college. And, you know, the, the, the rat that hits the little lever and then gets food. And you train him by, you know, positive reinforcement that, and that you know, that's probably true. And human beings work that way too. And there's nothing wrong with that necessarily. But, um, but ultimately, that kind of behavior management has its limits. It's law-based. It's performance-based. It's not grace-based. This is why parents, parents, absolutely, we, we got to teach our kids right from wrong. We got to have boundaries. We got to have rewards for good behavior and there needs to be consequences for bad choices. Absolutely. All under the umbrella of unconditional love. Absolutely got to do all that stuff, guys. But we need to share with them the gospel. They need to know Jesus. Because you know what? 
Jesus is the one who transforms. And some of you out there, you, you, I, I want to just say a word to you. You, know, you were out there and, and you told your kids, they got grown kids and you told them the gospel, you told them about Jesus. And you also did all the parenting stuff and you made mistakes, who doesn't? But you did a lot of great stuff. And yet you don't see um, those kids walking with Jesus right now or maybe trusting him at all. I want to encourage you. The gospel has power far beyond what you can imagine. So good job. And even if you made mistakes, God uses that. He certainly has in my life. And the gospel has a power that we don't. And that mere behavioral management does not. So this is why we tell you, if your parents today and your kids are young and formative, get them to places where they hear the truth of the gospel. Get them involved in children's programming. Do it at home. Pour, pour whatever you can till they are, they are washed in this biblical truth of grace and mercy and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because good only triumphs when the gospel takes hold of human hearts. Number five, a heart filled with God's goodness makes all the difference. Um... You know, guys, um, I, I've noted and I've heard people say this, you know, you can have really bad systems and maybe you're in a workplace. You got, they're not, they don't have their act together completely, but there's good people there. Well, good natured people, people that, 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 uh, that have love for one another. A lot of good stuff can happen. Whereas if you have the perfect system and bad people, it's never going to work. Because that's mechanical. Uh, this is what I'm saying. A heart filled with God's goodness makes all the difference. Um, now understand, bad people can create bad systems that need to be repaired, replaced, environments, whatever. I'm not, I'm not saying that that doesn't need to happen. But I am saying that ultimately, a heart filled with God's goodness makes all the difference. I remember, guys... Um, as uh, I was raised in, the, in, in a church and as a good moral kid in many ways, but on a lot of stuff, my views on things culturally, society-wise and everything, they were, they were wacky. They were wrong. And there were a lot of well-meaning people who came to me and they, they tried to show me where I was wrong. Like, you got this wrong. You got, and they're trying to yell at me and argue with me and they get really hot and sweaty and stuff and it's kind of scary. And um, it's like, that, that didn't change me. But I had a neighbor who loved me I had a neighbor who reached out to me and I had a neighbor who loved me enough to tell me the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when I met Jesus, within six months, my whole world had changed. I had changed. I had peace. I had joy. I had love. The Holy Spirit was living within me. And guess what? Suddenly my views on all this stuff started getting all corrected because that's the power of the word of God. That's the power of the spirit of God. The, the, the heart filled with God's goodness makes all the difference. And that's why ultimately we put our hope in Jesus Christ. And number six, we overcome evil with good. How do you bring lasting change? You must destroy evil. But Paul tells us, um, do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. Don't get swept up into the current of evil and paying back wrong with wrong, more wrong or evil by lowering your standards to do just what they do. That's, that's not the way of Jesus. If you want to bring out lasting change, it's the power of the gospel. It's the power of love. 
It's the power of truth that ultimately transforms the world. And in the book of Revelation, that's exactly what happened. These churches, though small in number, these people, though tiny minority of a pagan world, they said, yeah, we live in an evil empire. We live in an evil culture. And but with the goodness of God in their hearts and with the gospel of Jesus Christ on their lips, they went around doing good and leading with the gospel and following it with gospel implications, gospel applications to all their whole world, their workplace, their family, their, their culture. Guys, these, they turn the world upside down. And the good news is um, that's that same gospel and that same truth is still at work and we're going to see it happen. So we, we uh, guys, this is good stuff. This is good stuff. Eventually, Satan gets thrown in, into hell and he's gone forever. And we'll get to the rest of the story in the coming week. But I want you to see the power of Jesus to bring lasting change. Father in heaven, thank you for today. I pray, oh God, that this message would totally take hold of every heart. I pray for that one person who's never crossed the line of faith, who says, I need Jesus in my life. And I pray, oh God, that you would just from the inside out Help them to come to faith in you today, to trust in you, and then to transform them over time. And for all of us, help us to understand that ultimately our hope isn't in ourselves, not by might nor by power, but only by my spirit. It's going to be the spirit of Jesus that brings about change in us first and in the world around us. And ultimately, it's going to be Jesus who ultimately defeats evil and causes good to triumph. And we pray all of this in his powerful name, the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen, amen. God bless you all. You have a fantastic week ahead.